Hi, we're the ladies of LifeSite, and we're so glad you're here. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face every day from our unique perspectives. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hi, I'm Rebecca. Hi, I'm Maddie. Hi, I'm Claire. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Ladies of LifeSite. I'm Rebecca, and I've got a big mug of hot chocolate on this chilly, rainy day here in Missouri. So I hope that you can grab something yummy to sip on as you join us for this awesome discussion that we have with Pamela Acker. Pamela has actually joined John Henry on a couple of his podcasts and was also a speaker at our COVID conference that happened back in the middle of February. So thank you so much for joining us, Pamela. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. We also have joining um, me today is my co-hosts, Claire and Maddie. So thanks for being on this with us too, ladies. Hi, excited to be here. So I think that this topic is going to be a little bit different than what we've gotten into so far with Ladies of LifeSite, but it's one that I'm personally really passionate about because I think that it's just a really hidden kind of dark in between the shadows, there's not a lot of information that's readily available. And that's kind of been what LifeSite's been doing. I know Pamela is really passionate about getting this information out there as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about the connection between aborted fetal cells and vaccines and just kind of the general research that's currently happening with aborted fetal cells in the pharmaceutical industry and just the, the research that's happening. So I would encourage everyone listening to take some time to really actually listen to this podcast because this isn't like an anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine debate. We're just simply sharing information that isn't readily available and really dig into kind of what Pamela's experience has been and the, the research that she's done. So we also have a bunch of links that'll be in the description. So when we're done chatting and you're done listening, then you can refer to that for a lot more information about this topic. There'll be a lot of resources, videos, links, articles, etc. in the description. So I just want to mention too, we'll, we'll kind of dive into this. So Pamela worked in a lab for what was it about nine months? It was about nine or 10 months. Yeah, working with the HEK293 cell line that was derived from aborted fetal cells. So can you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you landed at the lab, how you discovered the truth of about HEK293, and then maybe a little bit about how you responded when you found out about it. I went to Catholic University of America, kind of at my mom's advice. I had been teaching in a school that closed in Houston and then homeschooled a couple kids for a couple of years, and that, that had come to kind of a natural endpoint. I didn't really know, you know, whether I wanted to keep teaching at that level or teach at college. So my mom really encouraged me to go back to graduate school, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to go pursue a graduate degree in biology. I'd love to do it at a Catholic university. So Catholic U was one of the places that actually offered a master's and PhD program in biology. And so I applied to their PhD program. And I was really excited because I had really wanted to work with the pro-life movement. But I, I find that I don't have the constitution for a sidewalk counselor 
or or even praying in front of abortion clinics. It's it's a really profoundly like disturbing experience. A few times I've tried to do it. Since I have an expertise in science and an interest in immunology, I, I've always been interested in the ethical issue of aborted fetal cell lines being used in vaccine development. And this really seemed to me like just a, an amazing opportunity to actually go into research in vaccine development and see if I could come up with some ethical alternatives. So I was super excited about looking into this kind of at, at different universities around the country. And I was really excited about Dr. Rao's lab at CUA because he was using a novel platform for uh, vaccine delivery. So it's kind of like the viral vector vaccines that are coming up in with uh, AstraZeneca and Moderna, or I'm sorry, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson with the COVID vaccines, but except he was using a bacteriophage, which is a virus that infects bacteria, instead of using an adenovirus vector, which is what, what those two vaccines are using. So I was stoked about this because, you know, you grow bacteriophages in E. coli. So I thought, this is awesome. There's no way that unethical cell lines are going to be used in this vaccine development. And he was also working on anthrax and plague vaccines at the time. Also awesome. My dad is in the Air Force, so anything anti-bioterrorism just sounded right up my alley. So when I got into the lab, they had just picked up a grant for developing an HIV vaccine. So everybody knew coming into the lab that the year that I came in in 2010 kind of got shuttled over to the HIV project because since it was kind of a two-stage grant with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they wanted to make sure that we put kind of all hands on deck to get this project moving forward so we could qualify for the second portion of the grant, which was substantially larger than the first portion. Mm-hmm. So... I got I got shifted over to HIV, which I wasn't thrilled about because, you know, there are ways to prevent HIV that don't involve vaccinating and actually do involve, you know, good moral practices. So I was I was less than thrilled about about that change of assignment. But I said, you know what, I'm still going to be able to to do vaccine development research and still, you know, accomplish the goal I came here for, which is to provide ethical alternatives to aborted fetal vaccines. So. I was working with a couple of cell lines trying to develop basically what's what you could sort of consider a, a guided targeting system for for the vaccines that we were developing because there was some thought at the time that if you attached these little peptides, which are short little pieces of protein on the outside of the, the viral vector, that it would target it to specific immune cells that would um, cause your body to develop more robust competence for for recognizing the pathogen that you're being vaccinated against. That was that was a lot of technical words. So I'll go back and maybe say it in slightly better layman's terms. But it, basically, these little peptides were were kind of homing beacons for cells in your body called dendritic cells, which move about your body and they they kind of scour the area for anything that might possibly be dangerous. And so we figured if we could get the vaccine to get picked up by the dendritic cells right away, we could make it a lot more efficient, which might mean we could use lower dosages. And it also might mean we'd have a better immune response with this this kind of targeting system. So that's what I was working on. And I was working in a few cell lines. One was from a Chinese hamster. One was a human cell line, but it was from cancer. And I forget I forget the source of the other one, but all, all ethical. It's probably a mouse cell line. The program that we were developing hit a few snags because HIV is a really very, an interesting virus. And it, it actually, when it escapes from your cells, it doesn't kill them like most viruses do. It uses a, a piece of your own cell membrane to sort of wrap itself with, and then it, it can kind of go 
camouflaged through your body a little bit. It, it does have some surface markers that indicate that it, it is HIV and it doesn't just sort of get away with completely masking itself as a body cell. But it uses some human proteins and some human cell membrane components. And so these were, of course, being developed in a human cell line. And I didn't... I didn't have any any sort of stake in this part of the project until one day in a lab meeting, Dr. Rao said that, you know, we need to we need to all sort of work on developing these these antigens in this human cell line because this part of the project isn't going very well. It's it's a lot uh, more tricky than the rest of it. And in fact, in most attempts at developing an HIV vaccine, this is where people get tripped up at this point. So so I turned to my colleague who was responsible for this part of the the development. And I said, Hey, what cell line do you use? And she said, Oh, it's HEK293. And something made me ask her, well, what does HEK stand for? And she said, human embryonic kidney. And if you've ever seen a movie where, <laughs> you know, the, the, the video kind of just like pans out from somebody's face as they have this earth shattering realization about something that's going on in the plot, that that's kind of akin to what I experienced in that moment. As soon as she said human embryonic kidney, you know, my, my stomach just kind of dropped and I knew that I was going to have to figure out what exactly that meant and where exactly that came from. And I, I suspected it probably was an aborted fetal cell line. And, and it turns out that I was correct. So I went home and did a Google search. Back then, Google wasn't as heavily censored as it is now. <laughs> and I came up with, and again, I, I feel like I feel like my guardian angel helps me out with the internet a lot because I've even done some searches recently where I've, I've really been looking for some information that I didn't even know quite how to find and I've been able to find it. So I, I found an article written by Dr. Alvin Wong from the National Catholic Bioethics Center and it's called The Ethics of HEK-293. And in it, he discusses the origin of the HEK-293 cell line and how it, it was developed and then the categories of, of remote material cooperation, as well as appropriation of evil that come along with its use in various various formats, particularly he was looking at it from the side also of the researchers and not just the, the parents or the people using the vaccine. So it was really very helpful to me. And I read that article and I, I spoke to some of the good priests and, and deacons that I knew on campus. And and the advice that I was given, which is, I think, actually not quite sound, was was basically, you know, well, you've you've made your complaint known to your your superior, which I, I did. I, I went and had a conversation with Dr. Rao about, you know, this is an aborted fetal cell line and, and I am a Catholic and this is a Catholic university and I don't think we should be using this here. And he was very, very resistant to hearing that. He he kind of insisted, well, this cell line is what's being used in the literature for other HIV vaccine vaccines that are being developed. And since it's what's being used in the literature, you know, kind of all of these procedures are, are optimized for use in the cell line, because I think a lot of people don't really understand what what makes this problem, you know, so entrenched is that once once I optimize a procedure in a cell line, I can't just take that same exact procedure and do it in another cell because all cell lines are slightly different in terms of their their chromosomes, in terms of the tissue they were originated in the body, in terms of their their general applications in the lab and the media you grow them in. I mean, all kinds of things are are slightly different from cell line to cell line. So if a researcher's already streamlined their procedure and won the cell line, they're not going to switch 
to another cell line without that being kind of a big headache and and very time consuming and and possibly even you know less effective or, or having less usefulness I guess than than the cell line that they started with. So he was he was very very resistant to what I had to say and basically told me that unless I abandoned my ethical convictions I I wouldn't ever be able to be successful as a scientist. That's terrible. Oh my gosh. If people have this idea that that the scientists are somehow you know more moral or ethical than your average human being, Mm -hmm. which is, is really just not very realistic at all. And I was just talking with some friends about this last night. We had a study group at my house and of course the vaccine came up and with science being held up as so much by secular society as the final arbiter of the truth, the scientists are really kind of held up as the priests of that religion. And, you know, Naturally, we expect our priests to have a higher moral code than we do ourselves, but really there's nothing about a scientist that would would engender or guarantee that. So people have, I think, this false idea that, that scientists are, are, are motivated purely for, you know, the good of humanity and, and they're not motivated by things like grant money or fame or pers- personal differences of opinion. Right, yeah. <laughs> or anything like that, but that's, that's just not... It's just not the case. So you said one thing that I kind of just want to make sure to clarify and let our listeners know. You mentioned kind of the article and the research that you did about how HEK-293 was created, like created and and founded, essentially. And I just want to say, like, there'll be a link to a really excellent article that Pamela wrote kind of explaining all of that and detailing that as well as an episode of the John Henry Weston show. And we'll link to that episode as well, where she is it you you talked about that as well, Pamela. So I don't think we really need to get into that because it's kind of provided for you as our listeners. So we'll kind of move move past that and say there's there's additional resources on that topic at least that Pamela's already covered pretty extensively. <laughs> so but so after kind of you brought this all up, how did you then begin doing additional research? Like where did you look for more information because you and I have actually had several exchanges and and comments about the fact that a lot of this information is really challenging to find because there's kind of this oh there's only two aborted fetal cell line like it's two abort abortions that all of these cell lines are derived from and that's it like only two have happened but you and you've shared this that that's not actually the truth so how did you start to actually find that information how did you dig into that and and what did you kind of discover I think it's important to to take a just a second to emphasize that even if it was only two abortions it would still be wrong yes <laughs> um, absolutely I, I, I yes. think people overlook they're like oh it was only one abortion so it's okay one one abortion is one one very grave reason to consider not using these vaccines and one grave reason is really all we need my understanding of all this and just the 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 not just the brutality of it which it, you know i discussed in the interview with john henry weston but but the the ubiquity of it i mean this is this is an industry this isn't this isn't just two abortions and and oh well you know this happened and it was unfortunate and so we should just sort of make use of the products that we currently have is really misrepresentative of, of what's you know, kind of a, a deeper a much much deeper problem here and i think the problem started to be it started to make some waves i mean way back with the polio vaccine so the polio vaccine was developed you know before abortion was even legal but it 
was developed using aborted fetal tissue that was taken from abortions that were done for for medical reasons and and there's a connection there too with eugenics that I think is is sort of worth noting and that's all outlined in in really good detail on the Children of God for website or Children of God for Life website and this is where this is these are the folks that first you know got me interested in the issue at all I didn't I didn't know that aborted fetal cell lines were used in vaccine until in vaccines until I ran across their their website and their research. And so Debbie Vintage, who who founded it and used to be the head of it, she just done a tremendous amount of legwork. I mean, I, I can't take credit really for, for any of the information that I'm sharing because she compiled most of it for me, you know, and then and then what I did was went back and, and looked in some of the scientific papers and I'm continuing to look in scientific papers trying to sort of trace some of the continuing connections on. And I think that as as time went on, as, as this raised kind of a a social stir, if you will, the researchers became a little bit more careful about what they did and did not publish. So, you know, it's very clear in some of the early papers on polio and the early papers on the MMR vaccine that, you know, dozens or, or you know, up to up to 100 with, with the MMR vaccine of abortions and uh, aborted fetal samples were, were obtained from individual babies. I think they started to be a little bit less willing to disclose those things. And so that does make it harder to, to trace. And the HEK-293 cell line came up later, it's about 10 years after the cell line that was developed for the, the rubella component of the mRNA vaccine. And, it, you know, Frank Graham has reportedly claimed that, you know, it was it was only one abortion. He only worked with one aborted fetus, except he didn't. He didn't say that. He, he leaves it to either to imply that he only worked with one aborted fetus because he says the cell line came from only one abortion. But there's, you know, and this is another instance where I think that my guardian angel helped me out with the Internet. I was able to find another paper where he and a, a number of other researchers are looking at the comparisons between the HEK-293 and some other aborted fetal cell lines. And in the figure legend of one of the figures in that paper, it mentions two other aborted fetal cell lines that Frank Graham is credited with having developed. And I'll, I'll share another thing that my my primary investigator, Dr. Rao, shared with me at one point. As a scientist, a good rule of thumb is if one experiment in 10 works, you're doing great. So when we talk about, you know, one abortion per cell line, you know, there's there's a way in that which that's correct because it was only one baby that all of these cells were, were derived from. But we also have to take in mind that the researcher is not going to create a viable cell line on their very first attempt. I mean, that's that's you know pretty much unheard of. And so Frank Graham did not create a, a viable cell line from an aborted fetal kidney on his very first attempt. And there were other there were other cell lines that were actually created, which means there were probably a number of other attempts for those cell lines as well. So we can't ignore those babies that also lost their lives to this research, I, I think doing so is really disingenuous. So, but, but this is where the vaccine researchers feel like they can, they can claim, okay, only two abortions were involved, even though many more were, because they're not technically telling a lie, but they're, they're not telling you about all the research they did that wasn't successful. And that research, uh, th that research, you know, still resulted in the loss of a lot of life. I think that we... Like we know that too, you know, not just from some of the research that you just mentioned, but you know, the there was they had the whole meeting with Dr. Stanley Plotkin. It was back a couple couple years ago, and and he even mentions too that he 
he couldn't even count the number of, of babies that he uh, that he utilized, the number of aborted babies that he utilized in his research. You know, for one specific one, he said, oh, it was, you know, 76. And that alone is is that is a lot of a lot of babies for one one specific cell line that that was successful. So as you mentioned, like this is clear and this this man is actually admitting it on camera. That just speaks to the idea that this really isn't it's this is an industry. You know, an aborted fetal tissue is being used in not just in vaccines anymore. I mean, this is kind of how it got started because vaccines were sort of considered such a, a necessary and life saving thing because of the smallpox, uh, smallpox and, and polio, which they were sort of originally deployed to prevent some of the and some of the earlier earliest vaccines that were developed. So there was there was this like strong strong pressure kind of like you guys are old enough to specifically remember Christopher Reeves before he died campaigning for embryonic stem cell research you know sort of you've got this image of this gentleman who's wheelchair bound and can't hardly speak and you know look look how you know these life-saving therapies would would help me if we you know we could just we could just access them and we could just Mm -hmm. use them you know and and so there's really you know vaccines are not the first time that or the only time I guess they may have been the first time that some sort of you know purportedly life-saving medical intervention has been used to justify expanding research using aborted fetal tissue or just fetal tissue in general. I know that kind of leads me into one of the other questions that we've actually received a lot from our audience is basically the entire vaccine industry as you you know as we as we're calling it is it basically entirely tainted by aborted fetal cells is there a way to create a vaccine that is completely and wholly separate from aborted fetal cells and is that happening now like I know that there is possibility you talked about kind of the research and that there's there's some of that happening. But is that, you know, is there any of that or is it mostly just the ones that actually contain the cell line name in the ingredients list that that would be a concern? It's definitely not all vaccines are are tainted with abortion. It's it probably seems that way because all of the currently licensed COVID vaccines are, they've touched abortion in some way. And there's been some confusion surrounding the, the whole idea of being tested in aborted fetal cells that, that maybe I'll be able to address here in a minute. But but the, the Children of God for Life website has a really good list and they've, they've turned it into like a one page PDF that people can print out and even hand out to others. Of, of all the vaccines that involve aborted fetal cells and which aborted fetal cells that they involve. And then they also have a link there where they talk about, you know, they, they reference the specific scientific papers that describe the creation of these cells and exactly how many abortions were, and you know, reported to have been involved in each of these cell lines. And so they, they've really accumulated a lot of great information. So is the entire vaccine industry tainted by abortion? No. Are there ethical ways to develop vaccines? Yes, absolutely. Some of them involve animal cells. Some of them involve ethical human cell lines. And in fact, I was just at a, uh, a pro-life conference this weekend where I heard the gentleman who founded the the John Paul II Medical Institute speak, and and he talked about how they have actually developed an ethical a human cell line alternative to some of these fetal cell lines using using cord blood, which is an ethical source, doesn't involve killing anybody, and they're hoping to be able to to produce these cells at at a level that they could be readily and widely distributed, you know, very, very soon. So that's, that's extremely hopeful. And and definitely there are alternatives out there. But there's the problem that 
I see is not so much a lack of alternatives, but kind of that same thing that my professor was telling me, like, look, we've, we've already figured out how to do this in HEK293 cells. Why, why would we do it in something different? And I think that's where a lot of the, a lot of the newer vaccines, because anything that involves uh, adenovirus, so the, any of the new viral vector vaccines um, that are being developed is that's been grown in HEK293 for a long time, such that, you know, people have really, really, really optimized culturing these viruses in those cells. And I think researchers are going to be really, really reluctant to make a switch, even if they do have an ethical alternative available. Yeah, it's just kind of habit and it it works. So why change? On that topic, I actually have a question for you. And I, I don't really want to change topics too much. But I actually my background is in biochemistry before I got into what I'm doing now. I, I got my, my undergraduate degree in biochemistry and I was I did research at Baylor College of Medicine down in Houston in one of their labs. And one of the things that we were looking at was trying to see if a specific gene was related to kind of a, a specific gen- congenital disorder, so uh, a disorder that that people are born with. And so what we had, what I was researching and doing was trying to recreate that protein in a human cell line. And we were using a cancer cell line, but you know, it was at the time I never even thought about the moral implications of possibly getting into HEK uh, cells. But I, I'd really love to hear, Pamela, if you have any thoughts, because the industry is so rooted, like you said, and and I totally understand, once you've got something optimized for a specific cell line, it's so difficult to change paths. But is there any hope for, you know, God changed my path in a very big way, but for people who might be wanting to go down that road to do some sort of research, but they really just don't want to, their conscience won't let them work with these cells like, like yours wouldn't, you know, what's, what's it going to take for people like that? Or, or do we just have to stay out of this industry entirely? We certainly don't have to stay out of the industry entirely. There are places that like sound choice pharmaceuticals in, in the, the John Paul II Institute that do use ethical alternatives, but they're, they're, they're few and, 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 far between, unfortunately. So certainly if somebody was interested in medical research, I'd recommend they, they look in those places first. And and I don't know if this is still true. I hope it is. But I was looking at um, possibly continuing my PhD program elsewhere because I ended up choosing to to leave Rouse Lab and, and, and get my master's as a consolation prize. Georgetown University, at the time that I was looking at, in about 2012, they actually were really committed to not using any embryonic stem cells or aborted fetal cells in their biology department, which is was kind of surprising to me that, that a, a university that was certainly not known for being authentically or traditionally Catholic was, was very committed okay. to not committing these sins in research, I guess you could say, in terms of using these these things, because the, the church has been very clear about, you know, the researchers cannot be complicit. If, if, if you know and you're a Catholic, you cannot be involved in this. It's not an option. It's very clear in Dignitas Personae. And the, the advice that I was kind of given at the time was like, well, you know, you've you've made your objection known. So, you know, it'd, it'd be destroying your livelihood if you left. And, and so you don't really have to do that. But I don't I don't think that's actually actually accurate when you look at the at the documents that have been issued by the Vatican's. They're they're very clear that the researchers researchers cannot cannot be involved that's that's no longer sufficiently participation you you really you have some level of formal participation when you're actually using it as a researcher that's really interesting and i'm glad to know that there are some some good alternatives out there i just i hope and pray that one day you know it'll become a more a more common objection that not just yeah. 
politics, but you know, pro-lifers all across the U.S. and in research can start to start to stand up for the the extreme injustices that are being done behind closed doors and really right. nobody's paying attention to. I think that one of the reasons, and people don't realize, you know, they say, well, you know, what 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 good is my voice? What good am I by myself? You know, one of the reasons it's so important as Catholics that that you know, I I think now is the time to decide we're not going to tolerate this anymore is is because can you imagine if every if every single catholic in the US stood up and said I'm not taking those vaccines they're they're being made in aborted fetal cells they would have to do something else they'd have to you know if they, if they wanted people to actually still get vaccinated and you know I I'm not a fan of you know experimental vaccines in general anyway so I I'm not even recommending that people take the ethical ones at this point just from a safety perspective but but it would really go such a long way to solving this moral dilemma if we would just say no, no more, you know, because why, since we haven't, it's it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until this thing is just absolutely monstrous. And there's all kinds of products that are tested in HEK 293. That's kind of been like my heart behind this is the fact that if we just continue to share this information and allow people to feel kind of emboldened with knowledge that they'll be more brave and courageous to kind of stand up against what's normal. It's really hard to stand up when you're like, well, I don't know exactly how that works. And I don't know exactly what that means. And I sort of have this vague idea that maybe it's not right, but I couldn't like articulate it to anybody. It's very hard when a doctor is saying, no, no, you really need this for the health of yourself or the health of your child to say, well, I have a bad feeling about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you go back to that kind of, you know, the, I I don't want to say like God complex that that doctors and scientists have in general, but you do kind of end up in front of people that are very learned and, and you're like, I, I just don't even know how to articulate that because I'm not as smart or as understanding of everything that you're saying. So, you know, it's, it's challenging. So kind of on that note, I think you and I, we, we, you mentioned earlier and kind of before we started recording um, about some talking points that can be shared with doctors and why you're deciding not to utilize or participate in, in an X, Y, and Z vaccine. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, again, you guys are going to get tired of me saying children of God for life, but <laughs> the children of God for life website has a really amazing tab that I just recently found called, and it's called Catholic exemptions. And they, they literally give you basically a form letter that you can copy and paste into your own word processing file and then print and file with your state exemption system. And, and it's just really, it's, it's amazing. It's pretty short. So I'll just, I'll just go ahead and read out what they've written here, but they, they've, they've definitely used some, some sort of legal sounding language and made, I think, a really good case. So uh, they say, whereas the supreme teaching authority of the Catholic Church, as illumined by sacred scripture and apostolic tradition, is defined in the catechism of the Catholic Church under the magisterium of the Church and the apostolic authority of our Holy Father, the Pope, and whereas the catechism of the Catholic Church and canon law binds parents to be primarily responsible for the physical, moral, and spiritual formation of their children, And whereas the Catechism of the Catholic Church holds abortion to be intrinsically evil, so much so that the consequences of such practice is grave enough to warrant excommunication, and whereas the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the Vatican have all denounced both abortion and human fetal tissue research procured from abortion or deliberately destroyed human embryos, and whereas the Catechism of the Catholic Church defers to moral conscience as the guideline that states in all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. 
Therefore, be it known that a Catholic, according to his good moral conscience and under direct teaching of the magisterium of the Catholic Church, has the absolute right to refuse any medical products derived from aborted fetal tissue, including vaccinations, tissue transplants, or future products derived from embryonic stem cell research or other areas that in themselves directly contradict the moral laws of the Church. Be it further noted that the Catholic Church encourages the faithful to use alternative products where they are available rather than those derived from deliberately destroyed human life, and that the Catholic Church accepts such human life to begin at the moment of fertilization through natural death. I also just want to say that I have a similar letter. It's very similar in in terms of like referencing scripture for any non-Catholics as well. So I'll put both of the links in the description to, to those. So if you want want access to both of those letters, then they'll be in there. That's excellent. I just, I really think it's great because this document and some people listening to it for the first time may be saying, you know, wait, I thought, I thought the, the Vatican documents said it was okay. None, none of the documents that have been released that have, that have given any kind of nod to, to the moral licity of, of these vaccines have said in any way, shape or form that you must receive them. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly some of them have been more encouraging than others and, and saying things like it's, you know, it's a, it's an act of charity towards your neighbor to help protect them from infection. But, you know, I, I, I've spoken before and I can speak again if you need me to, but just about how that that statement is is maybe inaccurate based on the science that there's there's actually not been any studies done with these vaccines that actually confirm that they interrupt transmission of the disease, only mm-hmm. that they, they protect the individual potentially who receives them from developing a, a worse case of the disease. But that protective effect is so modest that I don't think it's warranted based on the on the severe side effects that we're seeing with these vaccines. But but the church the church has never said that you're required to cooperate with evil. You can in good conscience say no, no, I, I don't want to do that. There's the other side of it too that it, you know, you sh- you shouldn't actually have to you shouldn't have to have this these documents to prove you just saying no to a to a medical procedure like that's essentially what a what a vaccine is or, or any of this that is complicit with evil like i can just say no and you should be able to accept it but i'm glad that there's resources less such as you know these letters people can pull out the universal declaration of bioethics and yes. which was i think part of the nuremberg convention you know it basically says that, that you have a right at any point to withdraw consent for a medical procedure i think we need to include that in our description also yes yeah oh yeah absolutely Good idea. Yeah, that'll be in there as well. I have I have uh, that link. Pamela, you mentioned something earlier that you wanted to expand on. You'll have to remind me what it was. I'm sorry. I, don't, I, don't what <laughs> I work I work with teenagers all day, so my attention span is very limited. <laughs> we were actually trying to remember that as well. I know it was right after we were talking, you started to answer the question about connections to aborted fetal cells and vaccines and the ones kind of connected ingredients list or or not and you said i'm going to touch on that in a second but i can't remember what you were going to touch on i know that you've asked a a couple questions about like sort of where i'm getting uh, this information from and you know if if people haven't heard of her dr teresa deicher from sound choice pharmaceuticals is another amazing source of information about the the dangers of aborted fetal vaccines so you know we've kind of been talking about this from a moral perspective and of course none of us are moral theologians but but just you know the the perspective of what what do you do as a faithful catholic you know given a situation like this and what kind of guiding principles can can we maybe look to but she also looks at the biological side of it and so she she's done some research documenting the the harm that is associated with receiving aborted fetal vaccines which which she has a pretty solid 
explanation of a potential biological mechanism for that being due to the fetal DNA contaminants that that end up in aborted fetal vaccines. And, you know, if anybody's concerned about specific numbers in that, you know, that Dr. Um, Marissa Brand did a really good job describing that in her her interview that, that she did with the, with your vaccine conference there. But but she talks about how the amount of aborted fetal DNA that's present in these vaccines, it, it, you know, exceeds safety limits by, I think, even up to like 18 times, you know, the amount of, of DNA that, that the, the FDA has said is, is a safe level. And, you know, I, I've also read in my own research that the, the amount of aborted fetal DNA in the chickenpox vaccine is actually higher than the antigen in the chickenpox vaccine that we're using to, to actually vaccinate you with. So there's more, there's more aborted fetal contaminant DNA in the chickenpox vaccine than there is actual active ingredient of the vaccine. So this is, this is a potentially, you know, not just a moral issue, but also even a, a safety issue from a biological standpoint, which, you know, to me truly makes perfect sense. Like, when you sin, there are natural consequences. I mean, you know, it, it, one of the easiest ways to sort of look look at this is is through you know the sin of promiscuity. If you're if you're going to engage in that kind of behavior outside of the marriage bond, it, it's going to have profound physical and psychological effects on you. And you know, I I don't think there should be any surprise that if we're going to inject the remains of aborted babies into our bodies, that that would also have profound biological and then also psychological effects on you. And one of the, the things that Dr. Alvin Wong talks about in in his paper, The Ethics of HEK293, is the appropriation of evil. And this is something that not too many people have have talked about. We've talked about cooperation with evil and remote and and passive and all those sorts of things. But but appropriation of evil is when when you stand to benefit, and I'm gonna probably butcher this because again I'm not a moral theologian, but but basically when you stand to benefit from somebody else's evil action, even though you didn't, you didn't cause it, you didn't occasion it, you didn't really give them an excuse to do it, but, but you're, you're deriving some benefit from it that actually affects your character internally in, in, I think in a more profound way than people realize. And so that's, that's yet another reason why I think it's very, very appropriate for people to be able to say, you know, no, I can't, I can't do this in good conscience. You know, I, I know what effect this is going to have on me. And that's, that's kind of the, the reason that I left Rao's lab, like I, I knew I could not get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror every day, knowing I'm going into a lab where they're doing the exact same kind of work that I've come here to combat. I, I, I couldn't handle that level of proximity to evil. And, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to, nobody should require that. I mean, and nobody, nobody is, you know, when it, when it comes down to the, the, documents that have been issued regarding the, the COVID vaccine in particular. That's an important note to emphasize is the fact that, you know, you aren't required and you're not encouraged even in any of these, in any of these documents or any of these statements that are coming out that you, you know, you do get to make that decision yourself and, and that it is between you and God. So fortunately, some of the documents are a little more encouraging than others, <laughs> but, but certainly, certainly not required. Are there any other questions or Pamela, do you have any other thoughts. Do you have any projects coming up that we should know about? I got asked a similar thing on a, an interview I did with Destroying the Faith. <laughs> and and I said, well, you know, sort of whatever God puts in front of me next. I'm just trying to, at this point, you know, I've, I've been inundated with, you know, probably as you guys have been inundated with questions ever since that, that interview I did with John Henry. I, I've been inundated with questions literally from all over the world. The, the book that I wrote is right now being translated into four different languages. It's also going to be published in the UK and in Africa. That's amazing. 
all of this is so far beyond anything that I ever imagined I would do with my life. It's not even funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm continuing to work uh, very closely with the Colby Center and, you know, kind of develop some some responses to some of these things and, and try to work on, you know, just cogently defending people's right to refuse this experimental, you know, medical intervention. So, you know, really, the the correct answer to that question is is kind of whatever God asks of me next, and I I don't I don't know exactly what that will be sitting here at this moment speaking to you, but I'm sure that He has some idea where I'm headed, so I'm just kind of along for the ride. Okay, well, unless anybody has any other questions, we'll just kind of wrap up. I don't want to say that I enjoy talking about this, <laughs> but I do in the sense that I think that encouraging other people to kind of understand what's happening and then have the courage to stand up. And say no, if, if that's what's laid upon their heart. I, I enjoy that aspect of kind of bringing this to light um, and shining on such a dark industry. I remember <laughs> what I was going to say. Oh, yes. Sure. <laughs> so I was going to talk about testing in HEK 293. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's there's been some confusion, and somebody just recently forwarded me an article that was written by by a good priest, and I, I I'm sure he has you know the best of intentions, but he talked about how you know basically any over the counter medication you could possibly take has been tested in HEK two nine three, and the the word testing is is being used in in a very non specific sense, and and we need to make some distinctions here that I think are are super important because if a researcher takes a drug that you developed and later runs a test on it in HEK two nine three cells, that doesn't affect the moral licity of you using that drug because the people who were involved in developing it didn't use those aborted fetal cells to actually develop it. You know that that was something that was done after the fact once the drug was released, and in some cases. You know, the, the, the citations that were being offered in this article that this good priest wrote, they, they were things that were not even being being run by the company who developed them at all. I think that's what sort of everybody's envisioning when they, they say, oh, well, it was tested in HEK 293. Is it something like after the vaccine was fully developed, everything was good to go. We just did this little like test over here off on the side to see something about it. I mean, we haven't had time <laughs> to run any of that kind of test on on any of these vaccines because because of the whole operation warp speed and we're pushing this on everybody as you know as quickly as possible to to try to contain you know the spread of a virus that that really spreads like the common cold so so our method of containment is is not certainly not the best one um in my opinion but we say that hek 293 was used in testing for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It's it's a lot more integral than that because this was this was used to test to develop the the spike protein that was initially kind of the target of for for the mRNA. It turns out that it's in its natural conformation it doesn't really keep its three-dimensional shape correctly in the human body so the researchers had to mutate it and when they mutated it they had to make sure that it did actually have the three-dimensional configuration they were expecting it to have so they they took that mutated mrna they put it into hek 293 cells and they then crystallized that protein and examined its three-dimensional structure and structure and said yes this is the mrna we want this was an, an integral part of the development this was not something that was just kind of done on the side they would not have even gotten to step one of developing this vaccine without using the HEK293 cells. But they didn't stop there. They used it again to see if, you know, once they encapsulated it in the lipid nanoparticles, if those lipid nanoparticles would actually cross the the cell membrane correctly and would actually get the, the mRNA from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. 
And they also used it to test the way that the protein would be expressed in body cells. So is it going to be expressed on the surface of the cell? Is it going to be released into interstitial fluid outside of the cell? So HEK293 was used multiple times in an, as an integral part of the design process for both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And it, it, it frustrates me when people are like, oh, it's just a test. No, <laughs> this was not, quote unquote, just a test. This was an integral part of, of research and development for this vaccine. This vaccine would not exist without having used those cell lines. You know, as it stands now, obviously something different could have been done, as we've discussed, but it wasn't done. So the vaccine itself would not exist without the use of these cell lines. And I think that that raises the, the moral question to, to a higher plane. It's a little harder to dismiss. I just think that's a, an incredibly important point. And this is all, again, documented on Children of God for Life's website. <laughs> Dr. Stacey Trasankos, who's taken over Children of God for Life, she has done a marvelous job looking at the, the actual scientific research, finding the publications and saying, look, right here, you know, it describes this specific kind of test you know, this is this is what's being done. And, and, you know, there was actually another test where they, they looked for neutralizing antibodies in people, you know, once they had been they had been uh, injected with the vaccine and they developed the the pseudo viruses, they called them. So they, they weren't infective coronavirus particles, but they were virus particles that ex displayed the spike protein on the outside because you have to have something for your antibody to bind to to see if your antibody is binding correctly. And those pseudoviruses that they made for that test were also made in HEK293. So, I mean, all this stuff is like right there on their website. They have a, a tab for COVID-19. It's it's actually, you know, COG for life. So COGFOR life.org slash guidance is exactly where you'll find that. And I'm sure you'll put that link in the in the show notes too. But it's all right there. And it's really kind of disheartening that I think the people who are making the the ethical distinctions, while they they're they're probably really great at making ethical distinctions and, and interpreting moral code, they're they're not basing their arguments on an actual understanding of the science that that's truly involved and, and what level of you know participation is this really based on the actual experiments that were done and the actual tests that were run. I'm just hopeful that that you know, that that information will be able to convey be conveyed a little bit more effectively, you know, maybe even to some some of the bishops or, or even to the Vatican so that people can be making, you know, good, good moral reasoning, but based on based on actual working understanding of the biology behind a lot of this stuff. That's vital and absolutely important. So I'm so glad you shared that, Pamela. I'm glad that came back to mind. <laughs> my guardian angel helps me out a lot on these things. Well, I think we're pretty close at time unless anybody else has anything to say. We're just so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being on and writing these articles at LifeSite. Well, thank you for saying that because uh, it's certainly not everybody's response. <laughs> I, I, I'm a very private person and I don't, I don't like even really talking about my opinion about really controversial topics at like, you know, dinner parties. <laughs> so doing it publicly has been, has really been a challenge, but it's also been a, a really beautiful sort of opportunity to see how, you know, when, when we're doing the duties of our state in life, God gives us the grace to do them, even if they're like way outside our competencies. Cause I have so many friends who are moms who are just like, I don't, you know, I don't know how to deal with, with this thing that my child does, or I, I don't feel adequate to do, you know, this thing about being a wife or a mother. And it's like, you know, you may not be the best person in the world who could possibly do that thing. But when that's a requirement of your state in life, God gives you the grace to do it. And, and that's, that's the only explanation I have for the fact that I'm even sitting here talking to you guys, you know, how, how many interviews later, <laughs> you know, after, after the initial one with John Henry, because this is not something I could do by myself. 
but it, it's 100% not. I just want to say, Pamela, just like you said, if there were only two aborted babies that were used in this research, it's too, too many. You know, if there's only one life that you touch with being on these interviews, it's, it's one life that you've that you've saved. But I know for a fact, you know, Rebecca and I being in marketing, we get to see a lot of the comments and a lot of the feedback from people. And we can both say for certainty that you have touched and changed a large number of lives already. And these interviews are just going to keep, you know, touching even more. So, so from the bottom of my heart, just like Claire said, thank you. I think you're just an amazing person. And, uh, you know, each life and each person that hears this you know, you can't listen to what you're saying and not leave a changed person. I'm kind of glad right now this isn't a video recording so people can see <laughs> make it a little emotional. Oh, I am absolutely thankful. And it's my hope and prayer that, as Maddie said, you you know, each of our listeners kind of come away from this with a little bit something to think about and that they just take this before the Lord. I know that, you know, he cares about each and every one of the decisions that we make and and this is, you know, this impacts a large, a large part and a large decision. So I'm just so thankful for the science and kind of logical side of, of everything that you shared, as well as kind of your emotional response and, and everything that you shared today too. So with that, I'm just going to say thanks for listening to this podcast episode and be sure to join us next week when we'll bring on some other LifeSite ladies. So be sure to subscribe to our email list in the description below so you can know about next week's episode and you could also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform if that's what you want to do but also feel free to contact us with any comments or topic ideas that you'd like to hear discussed so you can email us at ladies at lifesitenews.com and we just hope that you have a great week and we can't wait for you to join us next week Pamela has a book out called Vaccination, A Catholic Perspective. The book is full of information to help you and your family make informed decisions about vaccines. There's a link in the description if you want to learn more about it. And we're giving away three copies of the book to three of our listeners. To enter, just sign up for our email list. The link is in the description. The giveaway will end on April 23rd. We will choose the winner at random and we'll reach out to them via email. This giveaway is open to our listeners in the U.S. and Canada only. But we will be doing more giveaways like this in the future, so be sure to subscribe to our email list and subscribe to this channel on your favorite platform. Feel free to reach out to us anytime with comments and ideas at ladies at We would love to hear from you. Have a great week!